So Christian, would you now hear the word of the Lord to us this morning? This is John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, or rock. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you all, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Christian, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray and keep your Bibles open in your lap in front of you. Uh, Father, as we open up your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit, uh, by his powerful moving within us, would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would love your word because they point us to Jesus. And Father, would we see him and him alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, you may remember this, uh, but this was actually the passage that I preached on almost a year ago when I was interviewing to be your pastor. Anybody remember that first sermon? Well, this was the passage that I preached on. Uh, So uh, if you don't remember anything about that or if you weren't there, uh, that is quite okay. Uh, Don't worry about it. I'm not offended if you don't remember my sermon. After all, you don't remember every meal you eat, but you still got nourished, right? Thank you. There's amen. We've done pretty good for a year. I'm getting more amens. I am very excited about this. Uh, but friends, is, uh, if, you, if you know anything at all, you know, uh, when I came across this passage uh, when I was in college, at that time I had decided that I was totally done with religion, with God, with everything, and through a very inappropriate, theologically inaccurate prayer, I had gone to my dorm room late one night, shaken to my core, and prayed, God, if you're real, I'm going to read one book and one book only. I'm not going to talk to any pastors or friends or parents or any, anybody that I could think of that would have any inkling to try to get me to have faith. And so I said, I'm just going to read one book. 
And like I said, it was theologically inaccurate. That's a bad prayer. I'm not encouraging you to pray like that, but God is very gracious. And amazingly, I opened up to the Gospel of John. And back then, I had a red-letter Bible. Anybody have a red-letter Bible? Uh, you know, in those, you know, the sayings of Jesus on, uh, you know, on earth, the sayings of Jesus of Nazareth are in red letters. And uh, if you didn't notice this in your Bible, those words, what are you seeking, are the first red letters in the Gospel of John. Those are the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel. And it's a pretty profound question. And uh, the amazing thing when you read the Gospel of John is John can talk at sort of two levels. Uh, you may remember a few weeks ago I said that uh, the Gospel of John is sort of uh, like this uh, amazing paradox. You know, Pope Gregory said it this way in the 300s, right? Uh, the Gospel is shallow enough for the lamb to go waiting, but deep enough for an elephant to swim, right? And so John can talk at two levels, right? So in one sense, Jesus is simply asking a very basic question. It's only two words in Greek. He says, what are you wanting? What are you seeking? You know, there's some men who are following him, and he turns around and says, what do you want? But on a much more profound level, he's asking them, what are you really looking for? Why are you here? No, I mean that literally. Why are you here at church? You know, why are you here? That's the profound level that he's asking this question, right? So it's two levels. One is just simply, you know, what are you doing? But there is this sort of deep side to what Jesus is asking. What are you doing here? You know, I mean, talk about a great question to really consider. I know life goes by really fast, and you're busy, and you're already thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon. Uh, but friends, it is totally, totally uh, worthwhile um, and critical in your life to every once in a while stop and ask yourself, what is it that am I am seeking? Um, and as I've tried to answer that question for myself and try to listen to other people, um, you know, I'm reminded of uh, a song that I also used to listen to when I was in college a long time ago before I was sanctified by Kanye West called The Good Life. And uh, in this song, he describes for him what the good life is. Needless to say, I cannot repeat any line nor play it in a church service. <laughs> but if you want to hear an unabashed definition of what the good life is, it involves a lot of shopping, a lot of clothes, and a lot of women, and a lot of money. And that's his definition of the good life, right? And we can you know, sort of say, well, that's really crass, and you know, I don't live like that. Uh, but let me give you another definition of the good life, right? If we all know Kanye is really hedonistic and crazy and stuff, um, let me give you another way of how I think people live or perceive the good life. You may know this. And now the end is near. And so I face the final curtain, my friend, and I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, but much, much more than this. I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do. Each careful step along the byway, and much more than all this, I did it my way. I've laughed, I've laughed, I've loved, I've cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing, and now as tears subside, I find it also amusing to think I did all that, and may I say, not in any shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. I'm going to step off your toes for a second, sorry. No amens on that one, right? If you don't know what song that was, that was a famous song sung by Frank Sinatra, every millennial's favorite person to listen to on Spotify. 
But friends, it would do, it was, it's very fun to do a comparative analysis between what is now the number one funeral song, I Did It My Way, to what Kanye West says unapologetically in a lot of his songs. Uh, you know, we may think those people are overly stating their case, but in a lot of ways, the reason those songs resonate with so many people across the generational divide is because they speak to exactly what it is that we are seeking. You know, how do you define the good life? You know, if it's not Sinatra's and it's not Kanye's, how do you define the good life? Uh, you know, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, you know, how, how do you find your idea of the good life? Well, um, stop and reflect on what is it that you worry about when you lie down at night? You know, what's on your mind when you can't go to sleep? You know, what do you worry about in the morning when you're sipping your coffee? Or think about it this way. What do you daydream about? You know, like when you're all alone by yourself, you're taking a shower, you're taking a hike. What is it that preoccupies your mind? What is it if you could just get or have or become, then you think real life would actually be there in front of you? Right? I mean, think about it this way. What does every high schooler want to do? He wants to leave the house or she wants to leave the house and do what? Go to college or start a career. And then when you go to college, what do you want to do? Find your mate. And then what do you want to do? Get a great job. And then what do you want to do? Have kids or maybe not have kids, but mostly you want to travel and eat avocado toast now, right? Or whatever the cool thing is, <laughs> right? Travel and eat a lot of avocados, right? And then what do you want to do? Then you want to have a beautiful home. And then you want to have the beautiful RV. And then you want to have the beautiful vacations, right? And then you just can't wait for the kids to get out. And then what? Then you can't wait till your kids start pumping them out so you can have kids again <laughs> in the home, Right? And then what do you look forward to? Then you look forward to retirement so you don't have to work for that knucklehead of a boss or you can stop being that knucklehead of a boss finally. <laughs> and then what do you have to look forward to? Assisted living? <laughs> Think about it this way. If I could, if I could here, here's your life. You can have 2.3 kids or whatever the average is in America. Uh, you could own your own home. You could have the RV. You could have the vacations. Uh, and I could promise you, you will not die in much pain and your kids will have good careers. How many of you would take that deal? Almost everybody. But I hope you're really realizing the disconnect here, right? Nothing that Sinatra or Kanye or anything I've described whatsoever sounds anything like what Jesus is offering us or what he says real life is. You don't need Jesus for any of those things. In fact, what Jesus comes along and does, and he says, I'm not going to give you fuel so you can just sort of keep driving on the road of your life, realizing your own goals. What Jesus comes along and says is, you're on the wrong road. I'm the road. You're going in the complete wrong direction. Unless you lose everything, renounce everything and follow me, life will never, ever satisfy you. And the amazing thing is to your core, you know that's true, right? Because all of you were teenagers. Did college solve all of the problems you had hoped it would? Did your career, did your spouse, did your kids? And so we know the mirage is real and yet we live like it's not. So what's our problem? Well, I think it's all summed up into that kind of profound yet simple question, right? What are you seeking? Look with me at verse 35. You know, John the Baptist uh, has already told us that Jesus is God's lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that harkens back to all of these beautiful images all throughout the Old Testament of when lambs were killed 
for the protection and salvation of God's people. We think about the Passover lamb, whose blood was smeared over the doors that protected God's people. We think about the sacrifices. We think about when Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac, but at the last moment, God provided the lamb, right? Remember, that was what Isaac was asking his father in Genesis 22. He says, "Uh, Dad, where's the lamb for the offering? It's just me and you, and that knife's pretty big. And you remember what Abraham says? He says, God will provide the lamb. And amazingly, at the last hour, there's a ram caught in the thicket. So all these beautiful images of lambs being killed for the salvation of God's people. And most profoundly in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, the prophet Isaiah says this, Surely uh, the Messiah, the Christ, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Now, of course, the disciples, you know, Andrew and whoever this unnamed disciple is, when they're standing with John, they don't know all of that, right? There's some pretty deep theology. There's a lot of Bible into that statement. And so what happens is John the Baptist in verse 35 is sort of standing with two of his disciples, And he says this sort of intriguing, cryptic statement. He says, behold, right? See, gaze, behold, God's lamb. And the two disciples kind of look at each other, and they look back at John, and they look at each other, and then they just start walking. They start following Jesus, literally. Uh, That's not metaphorical. That means they physically started following him down the path, right? Remember those two levels? On one level, they're literally following him, but on a deeper level, this is how they begin to be followers of Jesus, So verse 37, the two disciples hear John say this, and they followed Jesus. And verse 38, and Jesus turned and saw them, and he says to them, what are you seeking? And I love what it reveals about Jesus in this next interchange. They say to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? You know, I don't know why you're here or what you're looking for or uh, what you think Jesus came to do, uh, but the first step of becoming a Christian or of becoming a follower of Jesus is actually trying to figure out who Jesus is. And uh, I, know, I know we get tripped up because if you know anything about the Bible or you were raised in the church, you know, there's that beautiful story of the disciples and they're in their boat and they're, you know, they're doing the whole Seattle thing. They're throwing the fish and, you know, sipping their coffee in the morning, their Hebrews coffee. And uh, some of you got that. That's good. Some of you still need your coffee, I guess. But they're doing the fishing thing. And you know, what's the famous story? In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, Jesus walks up to him and he says, follow me and you'll become fishers of men. And what do they do? Like that, immediately, they follow Jesus. And there's this sense that, wow, that's a pretty amazing response to a dude who apparently had never spoken to him before. But you see, John writing around 90 A.D., having read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, perhaps this unnamed disciple in our passage, who's standing around with Andrew. You know, we get five disciples' names in this passage, but we don't know who this guy is. This guy tells us, actually, that the disciples were being discipled already by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points out Jesus. And he says, that's who I'm really pointing towards. 
And so Andrew and this unnamed disciple spend a whole evening with Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've ever been pressured, you know, to buy a car. You know, anyone ever been pressured to buy anything? You want to buy it? You want to buy it right now? Right now. One, two, three. Do it now. But sometimes, I think Christians, we get into the tendency of treating Jesus like he is a used car that's just really good that you just need to buy right now. Commit your life to Jesus. Three, two, one, do it. Did you do it? I'm going to help you. Repeat after me. And there's a sense that it is good to be evangelistic, and people do need to decide for themselves who Jesus is, and they need to make a decision, right? You can't sit on the fence forever. That's pretty painful, and it'll leave some scars emotionally and physically. But the thing is, Jesus, with these disciples, did you notice that he's not necessarily pushing them towards decisionism? Instead, what happens is Jesus is just walking around, and they start following him. Somebody said something that was intriguing. I'll check out who Jesus is. I want to find out. It's kind of interesting. I like John the Baptist. He's a good guy. I'm interested in what he has to say. And Jesus turns around and he says, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And then you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, come stay with me. Come and see. Remember when I said John speaks at two levels? Come and you will see. Friend, that'll preach. You want to go hang out with Jesus for a while? Come and you will see. Live with Jesus for a whole year. Come and you will see why everybody is so crazy about him. Like nobody hates Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's so hard to find someone who actually hates Jesus. He's the most captivating person in history. You don't have to be a Christian to acknowledge that. And what Jesus says to skeptics and religious people and also people just kind of on the periphery that don't really know what he's all about, his invitation is as clear today as it was then. Come and you will find out. Come and you will see. And that's exactly what he says in verse 39. Did you see it? He said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. You know, in, a, in the ancient world, you know, you didn't want to go driving around at night, you know, in your car. You'd get robbed and stuff. And so what they did was they would spend the night. So this was, you know, ancient um, hospitality, right? So Jesus says, come spend the evening with me. And uh, I know when, um, when I read this in my dorm room, gosh, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, however long it was, when those red words, what are you seeking, um, were read, <laughs> and I saw them, uh, I may have already told you this, but audibly, audibly out loud, because I talk to myself when I'm alone, I know I'm weird, maybe you don't do it, but I do, and uh, as I was reading those words, you know, Jesus is looking at these sort of skeptical people trying to assess them from a distance, and Jesus says, what are you seeking? And I audibly said out loud, I'm seeking to disprove you. <laughs> Because I don't want to have to deal with religion or any of this stuff. I want to disprove you, Jesus. But the amazing thing is, Jesus' next response is, come and stay with me for a while. Come and you'll see. You know, when I think about faith, you know, um, and people, as people come to know Jesus, you know, it's, I think too often times as Christians, we think, if I can give somebody just the most amazing argument, for why Jesus is who he claims he is, then they'll believe. But the problem is, is that that really is thinking in terms of our mind is really the locus of who we are. 
And I'm not totally convinced that it's your mind that is really who you are to your core. I mean, think about it this way. Who here has ever been told by a doctor, well, you need a diet and exercise? And in your mind, what did you think? Yes, that is accurate information. I will contemplate that on my way home from Krispy Kreme. Do y'all have Krispy Kreme here? I just realized that. Y'all may not even know what I'm talking about. Okay. Okay, just making sure. See, but the invitation with Jesus um, is not this sort of anti-intellectual, you know, just ignore it. Uh, Instead, uh, you know, one pastor put it this way, uh, what if God is never going to give you an airtight argument? What if he gives you an airtight person? And that's what Jesus is. You know, it's pretty amazing, you know, what it's like to be around Jesus. You know, look at uh, verses 40 and 41 and 42. There's almost like this domino effect, right? As one disciple meets Jesus, it's like all of a sudden the natural response of figuring out who Jesus is is this desire to bring more people to Jesus. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. You know, as after he's done meeting with Jesus, you know, the next day, the first thing he does is he finds his brother, Simon, and he says, what? We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. You know, Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew is just the anointed one, the promised king, the king to end all kings, the king whose dominion would reign forever, right? The king that would reestablish the kingdom of David, that would uh, heal all of the nations. Uh, in Genesis 12, it says uh, the nation of Israel was formed so that they would be a blessing to all the people groups on the earth. And it was going to happen through this Messiah, this coming king. And that's exactly what Andrew says. He says, we found the Messiah, In Greek, the other language people spoke, you could say the word Christos or Christ. Same thing. And then look what happens in verse 42. So Andrew brings his brother, Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, yeah, I know who you are. You're Simon, the son of John or Jonah. And he says, instead, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the amazing thing is if you come to know Jesus um, one of the amazing sort of um, after effects, you know, the shock waves that ha- happen after like the crater of faith in your life, right? What happens in these sort of aftershocks is you start to become a totally different person. Um, and in some ways, this is embodied, right? When Peter gets his new name, Peter, right? He says, your name is Simon, uh, but forever you are going to be defined by who I am. You have a totally new identity, which is Petros, right? Rock. You know, it'd be like he, if somebody said, I'm going to call you Rocky from now on, right? That's what he's saying for Peter. And what I love about that is if you think about how we're living, you know, in today's world, so much of what we're struggling with is trying to figure out who we are. What does it mean to be me? And in the absence of any kind of um, meta narrative or story or faith or anything pertaining to the God, I mean, what do you have other than your urges? Um, than your whims. And yet Jesus comes along and he says profoundly what you are to your core is um, you're, you're not just a man or a woman or an Oregon fan or an Oregon State fan or a retiree or a wealthy person or a poor person. What you are profoundly 
is you are my child. And everything around your life is now going to change. Peter, I could not make the change more profound. I'm changing your entire name. You know, there's a really religious guy who struggles to get this idea that Jesus totally rewrites the trajectory of our life, that he takes us from one path and puts it on another totally different path. You know, there's a guy named Nicodemus, and he's very smart, and he's wealthy, and he's important. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus is what? You've got to be born again. <laughs> and he says, I have to be reborn? How am I going to go back into my mom's belly? You know, and Jesus is like, I'm talking on two levels, bro. <laughs> You've got to be born of the Spirit. You know, so friends, um, you, know, I, you know, I want everybody in this room to be born again. I want everybody to meet Jesus. Uh, but if you're not there yet, right, if you're on the periphery, you're still kind of assessing, uh, the good news is that Jesus is not going to pressure you. He's not going to twist your arm into some kind of quick decision. Instead, what he's going to say is, come and spend time with me. Come and you will see exactly who Jesus is. Look at verses 43 and following. You know, this goes on, right? So as people come to meet Jesus and their identities are reshaped, the next thing is this, there's this sort of domino continuing effect, right? The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he finds another disciple named Philip. And again, he talks to Philip, and he says, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. You know, these are all communities around the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and what's amazing is Philip, having met with Jesus and talked to him, he has this profound statement. He says, Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And all he's, sa- he's saying, he's very Jewish what he just said. Moses and the prophets was the Jewish way of talking about the Old Testament. Um, you know, if you go into a synagogue, they would call, they don't call it the Bible and they don't call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. And it stands for T and K, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Waketavim in Hebrew. Isn't that impressive that I know that? It's hard to say it all the time. I may have even said it wrong, but you don't know the difference. <laughs> right? That's why it's good to say other stuff in languages that people don't know, because they don't know whether you're speaking it accurately or not. But the point is, is what he's saying is he, when he says Moses in the law, he's talking about the Torah, the first five books. And the prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, He says, all of the Old Testament has been looking forward to this Messiah, and we found him. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. Now, I haven't been here nearly long enough to know where the podunk communities are around here, where, you know, maybe people don't live in houses that look like yours, and, you know, they don't talk like y'all do. But I can tell you where I'm from. I was born in a community called Goodwater, Alabama, of which no one has ever heard of in this room. And it's in the poorest county of Alabama. And our claim to fame was we had a Piggly Wiggly. Anyone know what a Piggly Wiggly is? It's, an, it's actually a grocery store. It's not a joke. It's a real place. People buy real food that they think will help them live longer lives at a Piggly Wiggly. I know it's hard to believe. But when Jesus says, you know, he's from Nazareth, when Jesus is from Nazareth, you got to remember, Nazareth was totally podunk in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I don't even know if y'all use that word, podunk. I would call them hillbillies or rednecks. Um, I don't know what what you call them out here, you know, people who live way out in Josephine County, you know, like way out on the other side of Josephine County or wherever the rural areas are, right? Like I said, I'm new here. I'm just throwing darts, seeing what what lands on what. But notice what Nathaniel says in verse 46. You know, 
There's still that tension between city people and rural people, even today, right? I mean, isn't that what we're watching before our eyes in our country? This kind of tension, right? And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that may partly be because in one of the old prophets in Micah, this old forgotten prophet in your Bible in your lap, it says that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so maybe Nathaniel knows about that. He says, how can the Messiah come from Nazareth? He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. But you know the answer to that, right? Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of the census. But Nathaniel doesn't know it. So he says, well, what good could ever come out of Nazareth? Those are, you know, that's a podunk, hillbilly community. And notice, Christian, that sometimes when you invite people to investigate Jesus, they may offend you. (laughs) They may be disrespectful. They may brush it aside. But what's the invitation that Philip gives to his friend? Look at verse 46. Come and see. You know, in a lot of ways, I think this is evangelism. This is what it means to share Jesus. You take people that you are close to, like your brothers or your sisters or your friends, right? A lot of these guys are sharing it with their brother, and they're not trying to make the most airtight argument of all time for why Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, what Jesus says is he says, come and you'll see. Find out that I am life itself. And the disciples turn around and they say, what? Come and see Jesus. Just listen to what he has to say. Um, you know, I find the most powerful evangelism uh, just to say, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Do you want to read it with me? And it's amazing. You know, the Bible is one of those classics. You know, anybody know what the definition of a classic book is? A classic is a book that no one has read, but everyone still has an opinion on. <laughs> right? Everyone's got an opinion about the Bible. But many people have never actually read it. So in a lot of ways, before you try to argue your spouse into faith or try to give them the airtight argument, instead, what if you were like, let's just read John together? Would you be open to that? Amazingly, I found a lot of people are open to just reading the Bible. You know, you don't have to twist anybody. You know, that is the great news about the Holy Spirit. He convicts. He moves. You know, you don't, uh, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you don't defend a line, you just let it loose, Right? Nathaniel in verse 46, giving us an example of what it means to be a disciple. Even early on, we see why Jesus liked Nathaniel. What he says is, just come and see Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, starts to reveal a little bit more about why he's so awesome and who he is. Right there, he says in verse 47, as Nathaniel's coming forward, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You know, love that definition, right? He's like, you're not going to beat around the bush. You're going to tell it like it is, Nathaniel. And we already saw that, right? Because he poked fun of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, okay, well, pff, how do you know who I am? How do you know anything about me? And then Jesus says this kind of cryptic line. And we'll never know what he's referring to. Uh, because only Nathaniel really knows what he's referring to. Um, don't try to get any sort of, you know, more meaning under the fig tree. The fig tree all throughout the Old Testament was just like sitting on your front porch. It's really hot and there's not air conditioning. So what do you do? You sit under a tree. And a lot of people had figs. So just, he's sitting outside. Maybe he was reading the Bible. Maybe he was having some kind of devotional or meditation. We'll never know. We'll never know exactly what Nathaniel was doing under this fig tree. But what Jesus says is he says, when you were sitting under there, I saw you. And there must have been something spiritually profound when Nathaniel was sitting under that fig tree. 
And when Jesus says, I was there and I saw you, Nathaniel immediately knew what Jesus was referring to. And friends, don't you just love that? That Jesus offers you individually the opportunity to connect with him in a way that may never be replicated by anybody else. Anybody in here come to faith crying in their dorm room at Ole Miss in 2007? No. Everybody in this room who came to faith in Jesus um, intimately came to know their Savior, who saw them, who was drawing them to himself before they even knew to be drawn by him. You know, this is why you just invite people, come and see. Trust that God is at work in somebody's life and that God's word will speak truth to that person. And of course, you know, Nathaniel's so blown away, he gives him all these messianic titles. You know, look at verse 49. It must have been pretty profound what Jesus was referring to because he goes from ridiculing Nazareth to calling him the son of God and the king of Israel. And Jesus says, because I said that, you know, you're going to believe me? Buddy, you're going to see a whole bunch more amazing things than these. And then in our final verse right there, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And I know that's like a really kind of wild verse. And um, it refers back to the story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder to heaven, right? You may remember this from Genesis. Uh, Jacob wrestles the angel. He's one of the original fathers of the nation of Israel. You know, his 12 sons are the 12 tribes. Uh, but there's this beautiful story about a place called Bethel, God's house. And Jacob goes to sleep. And in this vision, he sees this sort of ladder, this stairway, this connection point between earth and heaven, and the angels are going up and down. And what Jesus is telling Nathaniel, he says, you, you believe because I told you that? You will see heaven and earth reconnected again. And the connection is going to be the Son of Man, me. I'm going to be the connection between heaven and earth. I've come to take away the sins of the world to bring people in relationship to me. See, that's what Jesus is referring to. They don't get it immediately, but remember, Jesus' invitation is not always to force someone into a decision, it's to force somebody into a relationship with Jesus. Let me just finish with this. As I was reading John, um, I don't know when I became a Christian. You know, I just know that in college, I just cried my way through the Gospel of John, and I don't think I really got the right answer about what it was that my life was supposed to be based on or what I was supposed to be seeking um, and I, I didn't really know until I learned it from a woman. And in John chapter 20, at the very end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has come back from the dead, Jesus asks a very similar question. In John 20, verse 15, you know, Mary is weeping at the tomb because she thinks Jesus is dead. And Jesus, alive again, walks up to Mary. And you know what he says? He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You see, friends, um, the question, what are you seeking? That's not even the right question. What Jesus says is the right question is, whom are you seeking? What if God's never going to give you an airtight argument? What if he gives you an airtight person? And what if that person is the son of God? And what if he's come to give you a new identity and a new way of living and new hope? And what if his invitation is come and you'll see? Friends, it's not a what, it's a who that you should be seeking. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, most of all for Jesus.
And Lord, we confess that we seek after so many things. Uh, We worry about things you tell us not to worry about. Uh, But Father, we pray that we would seek your son, Jesus, that we would come and abide and remain with him, uh, that we would let our identities be reshaped by him. And Lord, that we would behold him as he is. In his name we pray. Amen.